everyone. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you are as safe and well as you can be right now. This week, I'm so honored to have with me one of Time Magazine's 2020 Women of the Year, Judith Human. Judy Human is a disability rights activist, the author of the memoir Being Human, and featured in the documentary Crip Camp, exec produced by Michelle and Barack Obama, premiering on Netflix this week. Judith Human contracted polio in 1949 in Brooklyn, New York, and discrimination came early. At five years old, she was denied the right to attend school because, as the principal put it, she was a fire hazard. When she was rejected her teaching license by the New York City Board of Education, she sued for discrimination and won a landmark case, becoming the first wheelchair user to teach in the city schools. She is an internationally recognized leader in the disability rights community, and she has spent her life fighting for civil rights. When regulations for the Rehabilitation Act in 1973 were stalled, Human helped organize more than 100 disabled activists at the so-called 504 sit-in at the San Francisco Federal Building. The occupation of the building lasted for 28 days, and ultimately the 504 sit-in succeeded. Regulations were signed, and it would lay the groundwork for the Americans with Disabilities Act signed by George W. Bush. Human served in the Clinton administration, and she was appointed by President Obama as the first special advisor for international disability rights. Judy Human is featured in the new documentary Crip Camp about the 1970 summer camp Camp Janae, described as a summer camp for the handicapped run by hippies in the New York Catskills. The documentary also follows several of the campers and others in their fight for civil rights. I mean, when Woodstock was happening, I remember being at my grandmother's listening on the transistor radio and saying, wish I could go, wish I could go, wish I could go. And then when I went to Janine, it was like, and there I was. I was in Woodstock. The music and the people. And just feel like these people are crazy, you know? I mean, in a good way. Come to Camp Janine and find yourself, you know? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your activism and for sharing your life story. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for calling. Before I get started to talk about your interesting life and work, I want to ask you, what is a chingona and why were you called that? Chingona, it kind of means like you have balls <laughs> or chutzpah. And my husband is from Mexico. And so he's always said, you know, that I'm chingona. And, you know, when I would come and talk with them and Say, you know, I was nervous about doing something or meeting someone, or he would always say, you're, you know, you're chingona, you can do it. <laughs> and I think that when people hear your story and, and read your book and see the movie, they'll see that you really are truly are a chingona. <laughs> Thank you. Your commitment to disability rights, human rights, stem from personal experience. I'd like you to take us back a bit to your early years. So I had polio when I was 18 months old. And I had been walking, I don't remember, but you know, not for that long a period of time. My parents were Jewish and my mother and father both had been born in Germany. 
And my father had left when he was 14 to live with family in Brooklyn. My mother was sent out when she was 12 to live with relatives that she didn't know in Chicago. I grew up in a very typical working class, middle class family. My father was a butcher, as were all of the men in his family who had come over from Germany. Books that the parents had been killed in the concentration camps. They were going through many different things, I'm sure, emotionally. My mother was also pregnant with my brother, Joseph. He was born in September. I had polio in August. So, you know, there was many things going on. Uh, We were lucky. We lived in a neighborhood where the neighbors were very close and really helped each other out. So while my mother was going to the hospital and my father to visit me, um, they would take care of my brother, who was just born. And I was in and out of hospitals for about three years. You know, it was a trying time, but I think one thing that was very important is my parents just really made a decision that in spite of the fact that I had a disability that was really dramatically changing their life, they just, you know, planned on moving ahead, doing what they would have done had I not had polio. Right. But then I think, you know, what they began to learn as I got older was that, well, they were seeing me as their child and, you know, really working hard to help me be able to achieve what I could achieve. The system around us was not. The system around us really looked at disabled people as people that were not equal. Do you remember the first time as a child that you felt that? Well, I think it started when I was like five and my mother took me to school to register me to go to school. And I remember the dress that I was going to wear and my mother pushing me to school and then, you know, not being able to go to school. You know, the story was that the principal said I would be a fire hazard and that the Board of Education of the City of New York would send a teacher to my house. Everyone who was five years old in New York went to kindergarten. I didn't. I didn't go to school at all. And then when I was supposed to be going to school for the first grade, the Board of Ed sent a teacher to my house two times a week, one day for an hour, another day for an hour and a half. And that went on until I was in the fourth grade. So, you know, in that time period, one of the things that I was not clearly understanding because I was a kid, that I was being treated differently. My brother Joseph started going to school. My friends on the block were going to school and I was at home. I would say that the moment that I started really feeling different was when I was about eight years old and a friend of mine who was a little older than I was pushing my wheelchair and we were going around the corner to a candy store. A kid came over to me who was with a couple other kids and looked at me and said, are you sick? And I very much remember feeling very embarrassed and didn't know what to do and was saying no. I would say that's really the moment that I noticed that I was seen as different by my peers, not necessarily by the kids on my block, because we knew each other since we were younger and But for kids who didn't know me, that was different. And I just want to say, I've been to Sweden a number of times. There was a woman that I met. Her first name was Karen. I don't remember her last name, but she was a psychologist. And she 
she was doing research that was looking at this precise issue of uh, how did kids with disabilities feel about themselves. One of the issues was when did they start noticing their difference? And her research was showing that kids around eight and nine years old, that's when they really started noticing their difference within the community. And this is years later. So I thought, I've always thought that was really very interesting because that was exactly the time. In your early 20s, you were said you wanted to be a teacher. And even then, the Board of Education wanted to stop you. Tell me about the meeting that you write about in the book. This was in the 1960s when I went to the university. So I took the courses I needed to be able to apply to be a teacher. And we had to take three exams, a written exam, an oral exam, and a medical exam. Each one of those exams were given in buildings that were not physically accessible. At that time in the United States, we had no laws uh, which made it illegal to discriminate against someone with a disability. My having to be carried up and down stairs for these interviews under the laws that we have now would have been deemed discrimination. But my friends carried me up and down the steps. I did my oral, I passed. I did my written, I passed. When I had to go for my medical exam, that was a very different situation. The doctor that I had, I don't mean to stereotype, but was an older woman who I think really did not envision someone like myself as a teacher. I had a motorized wheelchair. I'd been doing volunteer work, working with students in the community. And I was very capable of being able to be a teacher. She asked me questions that were completely bizarre. She asked me if I would show her how I went to the bathroom because she was like claiming that, I don't know what, when she asked me that question, I was completely freaked out. I was like 21 years old. That was certainly not a question that she should have been asking, but I knew I had to say something. I didn't want to cry, but that's the way I was feeling. I said to her, well, if other teachers had to show their kids how to go to the bathroom, I would be able to do that. But otherwise, I could assure her that I knew how to go to the bathroom. Hmm. I don't know where that answer came from, but I was trying not to let her beat me down. It was the early stages of the chingona. Yeah, I think so. It was, that's a good point, it's a good point Christina. <laughs> so, I mean, eventually, um, she kept asking me more intrusive questions. She asked me about my history, and I used to use crutches and braces, but I was never a good walker, more for physical therapy, that I would stand up so my muscles wouldn't get tight. And she told me that I was going to have to come back for another medical exam, and she wanted me to bring my crutches and braces and show her how I walk. I came back and did not bring my crutches and braces. I brought someone with me who was the head of the disabled student's office, Dr. Child. She would not let him in the room. He was a physical therapist, and he also was an African-American man who had experienced discrimination in his life. It was another terrible experience. And the bottom line was I was failed on my medical exam. So I actually called an organization called American Civil Liberties Union and explained that I'd been denied my license because I couldn't walk. They said no, they would not take the case because they saw it not as discrimination, but as a medical denial. 
I was very lucky, Christina. I knew someone who was a journalism major at my university, and he knew someone at the New York Times and talked to him about what was going on. He wrote this amazing article in the New York Times about how I'd been denied the right to teach and why he felt that was wrong. The next day, the New York Times did an editorial called Human versus the Board of Education. And the next day, a national television program asked me to go on the program and talk to someone from the Federal Department of Education. And in the middle of that, I got a call from a lawyer and he talked to me about what had happened. And I really liked him. And I asked him if he would consider representing me. We went to court. We had the first African-American female judge, Constance Baker Motley. She strongly encouraged them to give me another medical exam, which they did. And then I was given my license. And then I had difficulty getting a job. Many, many of the schools in New York in the 1970s were not accessible. So I ultimately got a job teaching in the segregated classes that I had gone to when I was a kid. I just watched the documentary Crib Camp, where where you're featured a lot, and I'd like to know what this camp meant to you. One of the things that I think was very important for me and many, many other disabled people, and not just disabled people, but, you know, in the United States, summer camps have been a big deal. Kids would go away for two, three, four, up to eight weeks camping, but the regular camps for kids. Uh, typically did not take disabled campers. When I went to both Camp Oakhurst and then Camp Jeanette, it was an opportunity to be away from family, you know, as you're getting older and being able to really figure out more of who you were and opportunities to be more of a decision maker for yourself. But it was really a wonderful opportunity for me and friends to start talking about this issue of difference how we were treated differently, and how we were treated in an inferior way, and began to really think about, you know, what would we like to create? What would we like a world to look like that we as disabled individuals could grow up in and become uh, productive people of our society, work, get married, have children, have families, contribute? The summers were very important for me and many other kids. When we get together as disabled people who are not ashamed of who we are and can support each other and the broader community to really allow us to look at who we are as individuals, who we are as a community, how we want our life to be able to move forward. You know, when you look at Sweden and other countries around the world, what I've said about what happened in the United States is not really different than what you would hear from disabled people in Sweden. And that is that people treat people differently. I think in many ways, people are afraid of looking at us because they're afraid of becoming like us. The reality is people will acquire a temporary disability. You know, you break your leg, your arm, your shoulder, whatever it may be. But then at You know, people acquire disabilities for lots of different reasons. And, you know, diabetes, mental health disabilities, depression, anxiety, epilepsy, cancer, multiple sclerosis, on and on, paraplegia, quadriplegia. I think what has been important to me and the people that I've worked with over the last number of decades is really pulling back the veil and allowing people to look at the fact that we each have individual contributions to make. 
and discarding anybody because of bias um, ultimately weakens the communities. And I think now that we're in the middle of this coronavirus situation, really being able to reach out to people and support people and allow um, people to see the intrinsic value of all people is really important. You have a fantastic phrase in the book where you say, disability is a family we all can join at any time. Exactly. I don't know if you know a gentleman named Trevor Noah. Daily Show. He interviewed me on March 4th. You know, one of the things in the interview is he calls himself able-bodied. And I mentioned to him, Mm -hmm. no, I call you non-disabled because the likelihood of your acquiring a permanent or temporary disability in your lifetime is very likely. And he says to me, kind of in a joking way, are you threatening me? And I said, I guess I am. (laughs) He's very smart. And this was completely unplanned. So I thought his choice of words, are you threatening me, was, was interesting because people do see disability as a threat. He didn't mean anything intentionally negative, but I think I was really happy that I said to him, I don't use the term able-bodied, I use the term non-disabled, and to have that little discussion, because it really uncovered something very quickly that, you know, many of us believe is absolutely one of the reasons why it's been so difficult for disabled people really to become integrated members of society and hopefully really being able to look at what people's fears are and looking proactively at what can be done. And by that, I mean, you know, what is the role of government in helping to ensure that housing is accessible, that services that people need, like assistance in the home, are done in an appropriate way where the individual has much control over their life as possible. All these things that can be empowering or disempowering. And just that little switch of perspective that you're talking about with this exchange that you had with with Trevor Noah really, you know, is eye-opening to think about. Yeah. We're absolutely instrumental in starting and running disability rights movement. Discrimination occurs on a daily basis against disabled people. Just like, you know, the Me Too movement, it took a long time for women and there's still more women who need to come out and talk about the terrible things that have happened to us in our lifetime. Um, And it's not just the telling of the story. It's then what needs to be done. So I think if we look at the disability movement and we look at it in parallel to other movements, Um, There are a couple of things I just want to say. One is it's important both during the 504 demonstration in 1977 and then all the work that was done up to the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act and signed by, at that point, President Bush. What was important was that the civil rights communities came together, that we were able, they were supporting what was going on in the disability community, and we've been supporting what's going on in the broader Uh, civil rights communities. In part, you know, because disability, like gender, you know, we're from every background, right? We're all races, we're all religions. We're from all countries around the world. We have a lot more in common than difference. And our differences really would be very positively removed and people would see the common value if we were able to be respectful and not fearful of other people. 
You were talking about where we are today with the coronavirus. If anything, your work, um, do you see that we can do, how we can help each other get through this? Well, I think it's very important that when we look at what our communities are doing uh, to prevent the spread and to assist people who have been affected, that we make sure that disabled people are being included in looking at solutions. In the book, you mention how much the Obama administration worked to support. How have things been different under Trump? Well, I mean, I would just say very simply, both under President Clinton, less so under President Bush, but he did not abandon disability, President Bush too. Mm -hmm. Clinton and Obama hired many disabled people in middle-level to a little bit more senior-level positions. Obama had a number of people, as did Clinton, in the White House that were liaisons on disability. And so there was a much more vibrant discussion going on about disability because there were people in government that could continue to push forward on this discussion. In complete contrast to today with uh, the current administration, where they've appointed nobody in the White House to do work on disability, they've not filled the position that I had had at the State Department, I was a political, they didn't bring in one of their people to be the um, international disability rights specialist. They haven't done it across the board. And so what you're seeing, like when I think about the current president, what I recall is him mocking a disabled reporter from the New York Times. So uh, yes. I would say that disrespect prevails, um, that his government um, agencies are not doing what they need to do because he has not um, brought people in who understand the issues and are pushing for the issues. And uh, it's, you know, really the tragedy. And hopefully we'll get through this and hopefully in the fall have another person elected president. Um, I wanted to end the interview by asking you, we talked about your mother and your parents at the beginning, about a story in your book, um, I think it was around the time you were a teacher, where you were going to be honored with an award, and your father took you there to, to be with you as you were accepting this award. So this is when I was in high school. I was graduating from high school, and a friend of mine had died, and they had started an award, the Evelyn Fratano award for achievement. And I had been selected as the student to receive that award. This was in a regular high school. There were some special ed classes. I had attended most of my classes with non-disabled students. And we, anyone receiving an award was going to be on the stage. And when we got to the university, um, there were steps onto the stage. And my father was pulling my wheelchair up the steps and the principal came over and said, no, he didn't want me up on the stage. I could sit in the front row and they would come down and give me my award. And uh, this is before I was really Chingona. Um, <laughs> this is before I was Chingona because I felt like I wanted to cry. I wanted to run away. I mean, you know, I was a teenager and I was being selected out and I was embarrassed. And my father said, no, he pulled my wheelchair up the steps, but the principal made me sit in the very last row um, on the stage. 
which meant at that point I did not have a motorized wheelchair, which meant that when they called my name, I couldn't come all the way to the front because I couldn't push myself that far. So someone just came back and gave it to me. But my father was right in not taking me home and not letting me sit in the front row, which I did not want to do. I just wanted to leave. And I think, you know, it's these types of incidents which still occur today where people look at me and, you know, millions of others as not being individuals who have feelings and not treating us as equals. While this was in, you know, 1965, it could just as easily be in 2020. Well, Ms. Human, thank you so much. I'm so happy that you, you know, became the chingona that you became and and have spent your life um, doing so much for for all the human rights. And and I thank you so much for taking your time and talking with me. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you so much to Judith Human. Her book, Being Human, is out now. And the documentary Crip Camp premieres on Netflix on Wednesday, March 25th. And thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It really helps others to find us. I'm Christina Yerlingbiru. See you next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) I know, right?